0: Well, good morning so much, Church. Good to see good you all, and thank you for having me back. It's starting to feel more regular, right? And uh, for me, that's a good thing. It, it's, it's a privilege to be back here again with you, and um, you know, to be invited back means, okay, I didn't mess it up the previous time, so that's, that's good. Um, And thank you, Paul, by the way, for showing the EFCA video. That was really insightful and uh, helpful for even me because just an update with our family. You could be praying for us. Next week, I'm going to be visiting uh, your sister church, actually, uh, an evangelical free church in Napa, uh, Creekside. And I'm going to be preaching there, starting the process of um, candidating to come on board with ministry there. So I would love for you to be praying for us and our family um, and to just be considering, you know, what is God doing? Because the gospel is really what why we do this. Uh, the good news is something that should reach the world and reach even the the recesses of California where it's needed, places like Napa. So please be praying for us on that. All right, today, right, we've got, I have to do this. I have to start off with just this joke I'm going to read to you about today, okay, just to kick us off. Totally unrelated, but about the Super Bowl. I had to, sorry Paul. A man had a 50-yard line tickets, had 50-yard line tickets for the Super Bowl. And as he sits down, a man comes across and asks if anyone is sitting in the seat next to him. No, he says, the seat is empty. This is incredible, said the man. Who in their right mind would have a seat like this for the Super Bowl, the biggest sporting event in the world, and not use it? He says, "Well, actually, the seat belongs to me." I was supposed to come with my wife, but she passed away. This is the first Super Bowl we haven't been together since we got married in 1967. So maybe we should update this a little bit. 1971, let's say that. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's terrible. But couldn't you find someone else, a friend or a relative or a neighbor, to ask to take the seat? And the man shakes his head, no, they're all at the funeral. <laughs> oh! Oh, How many of you have heard that before? (laughs) Okay, what? Okay, good. All right, good. Shade. Anyway, I I hope that... I had some other things I would share here for you, but uh, there's just one thing I thought was um, interesting this week. You know, there's this famous hippo at the Cincinnati Zoo. Her name is Fiona. And every year, Fiona picks who's going to win the Super Bowl. And sometimes she's right. They put out these two buoys with each team's... Um, you know, logos on that, and she goes up to the buoys and starts kicking and playing, and usually they think that that team wins. Well, this year, the Bengals, right? Cincinnati, Cincinnati Zoo, they put the buoys in front of her, and I saw the video. They had this really nicely decorated Bengals buoy, right, with the logo so colorful, and then they had the Rams one, and it was over here, it was like some stickers from the Dollar Tree that said Rams, you know, letters, and then they went ahead and put food on top of the buoy for the Bengals, and so she just walks right over to that and starts kicking it around, you know, it's like, yeah, that's biased. Uh, We'll see what happens, but I hope you have a great Sunday today. Well, today we're going to be talking about a parable. A very important parable. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. This chapter is an incredible and beautiful chapter. It's a poignant and significant chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Here, Jesus tells a series of parables about lost items a lost sheep, a lost coin, and finally, the climactic parable is one of a lost son. And these parables are powerful because they kind of stir within us a response of an emotion because to talk about lost things, we all relate to that. We all have lost something at one point or another in our lives. Ancient people lost things at some point in their lives and you feel something when you find something that's important to you that has value that's been lost. And So partially this chapter is so poignant because to speak about lost things being found, we feel something. And it instructs us about how God sees us in the world. So as I think about Jesus teaching this, just before we jump into the text, as I think about Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher, he was a masterful rabbi. Obviously, we're still here talking about what he he taught, and we're still learning from him today, thousands of years later. Here we are. But, you know, currently I'm working in the public school system and in education, and I can tell you it's not easy work. It's very difficult work, you know. And when I see how Jesus did it, it's like he was a master at it. He utilized not just one method of teaching but multiple. You know, as we often think of teachers, we think of the context like this where, you know, you have a captive audience and you stand up front and you deliver a message and a a sermon. And certainly Jesus had... Those kinds of moments where he had mixed audiences. You think of the Sermon on the Mount, he delivers a message or the Sermon on the Plain. But he had other methods as well. And he, he did things like object lessons. So just living life as they were going. And he'd be with his disciples. And you think of different objects that Jesus would utilize to demonstrate a spiritual idea. They're walking through Samaria. He comes up to a well and he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. And it turns into an object lesson about living water that only he can provide. It's eternal life. His disciples come back and are marveling, right? It's real life happening. Oh, you're talking to the Samaritan woman. And that even of itself is a demonstration of a method of teaching. And Jesus called these 12 disciples to apprentice with him for three years and to actually have intimacy, to watch firsthand. How do you live this life? How, how do you actually behave according to the principles of the kingdom? So you had that element of his, of his teaching but here with parables, uh, the, ones, the one that we're going to read, specifically the parable of the lost son, what we see is Jesus masterfully using this, this story as a way to give, bring a real life setting, to make it come alive, the spiritual truth, that's it's the reality of the gospel. And it, it, so for this, these reasons, I really think that this is such a powerful presentation of the truth that we talk about, the, the truth we confess, the gospel of Christ himself. Uh, this parable is the parable of the lost son. I'm going to be reading from uh, verses 11 through 32. Some of you might know it as the parable of the prodigal son, prodigal meaning reckless. Um, your Bibles probably have one of those two titles on the heading as we read this. But as I read it, uh, you know, and I didn't plan it this way, but I, 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 I kind of forgot that tomorrow's Valentine's Day, but this is Timely because really what this is presenting in the gospel is a love that is so incredibly radical. This is God's love for us. I've been telling you in the couple of times that I've been here how important it is for us to be reminded of the gospel, and this is one of the... I don't know how else to do it than to share this story. It's a story about God's radical love, and it bears repeating, and it bears being reminded of it. You know, God's love is incomprehensible, it goes beyond our imagination. It is otherworldly. God's love for us is otherworldly. It's heavenly. No human can love like this unless God is with them. That's the, the story that we're gonna look at today. It's about today, God's radical love. And my purposes in today is twofold. First of all, I, I hope to maybe persuade you to title this parable differently as you think about it. So I'm gonna try to work on that as we talk today. And then secondly, it's just to remind you of the power of God's radical love and how appropriate to be sent out with that sentiment as we uh, think about what this weekend is all about. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, let's read. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. I like this. Both my sons are here today. By the way, this is good for me too, right? Uh, I have my own kids here. You have your kids here. Maybe this is the first time some of us are hearing this. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran out and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the robe, the best robe, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this And he refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost, and he is found. We could just stop there. Jesus was the master. I mean, it was a beautiful parable. He taught in parables for various reasons. Parabolic stories were relatable to an audience. Jesus would take common things to teach a spiritual truth about the kingdom of heaven, things that people could associate with, could identify with. He would utilize things from even their own culture, an ancient Near Eastern culture, so that playing upon their expectations and cultural ideas and their mores and their behaviors and structures, he could actually teach something that was otherworldly. Here in this context, he's also teaching a parable because we have to think about who's the audience specifically. If you go back up to Luke chapter 15, verse 1, we read that there is a group of Pharisees that are openly criticizing this rabbi for his association with sinners. And so it's from that context, within that audience and that mindset, that Jesus speaks these parables about lost things. Now, these Pharisees, we know of them, we think of them as... Uh, legalists, right? Which means that they believe that following the, the, uh, the law, strictly observing the law, is what would earn you blessing, wealth, and basically would bring the kingdom, would, would, would establish Israel as it's a covenant people of God and would make them powerful in the world. So they were leaders. They had some separatistic tendencies. They were elitists. They were certainly legalistic and moral. And when you think about that, that as a sentiment, it's, it's really something that almost hits all of us, that we, we believe this principle that if I do what's right, if I'm a good person, then good things will happen to me. And so, therefore, I should earn all the things that I have in my life and, and work hard, and I will reap good consequences. They, though, as elitists, as wealthy men, as leaders, they, they were very judgmental. They were hypercritical and almost untouchable. To just simply put it, they were judgy. Now, do you know anybody like that? Now, be careful before you start thinking, right, uh, any names in your head. I wanted to read this quote from Charles Spurgeon in a sermon he once preached. He said, Beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian, for we are all born legalists. He's basically saying this is a human predicament, you know, what the Pharisees were is what they, what they embody is really what's inside all of us. There's a Pharisee quotient in us where we still think that we can earn our right status in life and especially before God. And as a pastor through the years, there are certain questions where you can still hear Christians kind of revealing that that's how they view God. You know, one of the questions that maybe you've been asked, I've certainly asked it over the years to people is, you know, if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God in heaven and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would, what would you say? And there's lots of different reasons that people give, but a frequent reason that I hear is, you should let me in because I believed in you, because I trusted you, or I did good things, or I loved you. I, I, I tried my hardest. Something of that variation. I did something good. And the response to that is, can you ever love God good enough based on his perfection? Can you ever believe Did you believe in him every second of your life? Did you, did you fully and perfectly follow all, the, all of his, his requirements? No. So we're all legalists in a sense. We're, we're battling with that. And that, that really builds into where this idea of God's radical love is coming from because he's going to be the one to help us out with what we can't fix in ourselves. Earlier in chapter 15, we read that the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus for his associating with sinners. And so God's radical love is how he responds. He gives a picture of the gospel to this audience. So there's three characters in the story, a father and his two sons, and it starts with focusing in on the younger son. And in verse 12, this younger son, he requests all of his inheritance from his father. Give me everything I have coming to him. Now, the question in and of itself might not be a bad thing or the demand might not be a bad thing if his father was on his deathbed. But the audience hearing the story would know that this, this father is healthy and he's not on his deathbed. This is a very highly inappropriate question or demand from this son to come to his father. He's basically telling his dad, you are dead to me. I want out of this house. I want to go do my own thing, so give me what I have coming to me. Now the audience would expect, right? The 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 right and wrong, the moralists that that moralism that's within us would expect that the father would do what next? Discipline him. That he would he would he would Hand out a beatdown. He would give some discipline. That's what the audience is, ex- is expecting is going to be the next thing. It's a consequence because the son is acting. You have, to, uh, you have to imagine, not only would this be offensive in our day and age, it would look a little different if a son came to us and said, I'm out of here, peace out, dad. But in their society, in, in ancient Near Eastern culture, they were much more communal than we are. And and they shared Goods And everything that, like, I have is yours. Like, th- their interconnectedness was more communal. And so him, with this request, asking for his inheritance is, is basically just saying, I want no association, nothing to do with you. It, it is a complete, it's a, it's, it goes against his heritage. It goes against his name. It goes against his dad's, the household, the goods, his dad's people, their servants. His brother goes against even maybe his neighborhood. Because they were interconnected that way. We, we also had shared community. So it goes against everything. So yeah, we should penalize this son for even asking that. No, go sit down. You're not getting this right now. But the first step of God's radical love is that this father does what's opposite of what we would expect. He says, okay, here you go. And lets the son go. And so while the son is out... As after he's already insulted his father, he's out, and he's living the life. He's, he's uh, living the Hollywood life. He spends all of his money. He's down with nothing. He's in an incredible deficit, so much so that he's working for a pagan who's having him feed his pigs. And obviously, at this point in the story, for those of us who love justice, this is the part where the Pharisees are probably like, that's right. You had that coming to you. You're getting what you deserved. You're living unclean with these pigs. You're working for some pagan. You're outside of the promised land. Like, get yours justice, right? And just when we get to that point, when we're all saying, yes, that's what should happen, comes the turning point in verse 17. It says, he came to himself. This younger son had this like eye-opening moment to realize his brokenness. He came to himself, verse 17. And so this is where he's realizing what had happened, how bad his life had become because of his choices. He's realizing his brokenness. And in this moment, there's probably a slew of emotions, and this is a little bit of speculation, but I would imagine that he's, he's either feeling a form of regret, or guilt, or maybe even some shame. Like, yeah, I shouldn't be here with the pigs, but here I am. So he does what any single one of us do when we start to feel that way. When we aren't adding up to whatever the standard is that we've set. When we feel guilt, when we've failed, when we feel shame for something, if there's regret. We start to make a plan to do better. I'm going to make a resolution. I'm going to come up with some status some process that's going to help me earn my status back. I'm going to do whatever it takes to just get back to where I was or to even have some semblance of that. So the son comes up with a plan, yada, yada, yada. I'm going to go back to my dad's house, even there. Maybe he'll be, I know he's a gracious man. He's a nice man. Maybe he'll just let me be a servant. He comes up with this plan. But it's all built on his own regret and brokenness. And so as we move to the next phase of the story, when he follows his plan and he goes home, this is where it becomes step two radical. When the father sees him, he goes running out to him. You know, the image here is like he's inside the house. He sees the son at the gate and he goes running to him. He goes running to him. He goes out to him and he receives him. And then he makes this preparation for a celebration. They're going to celebrate and rejoice because he's here. He's back. So this next step of radical love is that the father comes out to him and they're celebrating that he's come home. Really, it's that God's radical love is rejoicing. It's about rejoicing over us, that God rejoices over you, that God celebrates you, that God celebrates the lost being found, the dead coming to life. Sometimes I have to think about that. God celebrates me. God rejoices over me. He rejoices over us, that we belong to him, and that we have come to life because of his provision. Like, there's a celebration. There's a rejoicing. His son came back. He had a change of heart. And what's interesting here is um, if you look at verses 18 and 20, the repeating word there says that this younger son rose, rose up. He rose up. And it's the same word. And I, I think Luke does this throughout his gospel. He's using this language. He could have said something else like the, the younger son got up and proceeded to, the, to go back to his father or something like that. But he uses the language of resurrection, that this, this son rose up. So it's this subtle imagery of there was resurrection and and that this is what it looks like from from death to life. There should be rejoicing. If you are in Christ, you are alive today, right now. We're alive. Even when we die, we'll be alive. And there should be some rejoicing that goes with that. It's part of the gospel. And so at this point, I'm sure the Pharisees are rolling their eyes and they're just like... This is, this story's lame. This, what is he trying to, who does that? That is not what would happen. That father would not go out to me. The son, he would, he would close, shut the blinds. He's dead to me. He's gone. He's dead. And so that tension leads us to now the older son and that second character and, so this older son, the preparations are made for this celebration, and the, the older son is out in the in the field. And, and again, just if you think about Near Eastern culture, they're communals. So um, the preparations being made, and I love this part too, because you know when you go to other countries, you feel this too. Like when you smell barbecue in the air, that's a signal. There's a party at someone's house, and that's the invite. So they got the fattest calf, and he's on the barbecue right now. And so the neighborhood's coming. The neighborhood's celebrating. They're dancing. They're partying. You know, and um, that that's like, you're supposed to, everybody, sh- you're supposed to be there. Everybody's supposed to be there. They're supposed to be in the house. They're supposed to be celebrating together. The son's back. But the older son, he's out. And you want to notice his posture as you think back through this parable. Where is he this whole time, this older son? It has been made as an analogy, this connection, that if we think about the father's house, that it is... Emblematic of God's salvation, it's God's providence, it's, it's God's presence, it's God with you, and it's his being inside God's house is, is reaping the benefits of your identity of uh, with him. You're, you're with God the Father, and you're in his salvation, you're, you're in his family. And the older son, the whole time he's staying outside of the house. So when he comes up, he doesn't even go to get, have somebody come out, like somebody with authority from the house. Come tell me what happens. You notice he calls a servant. As if to be under the radar, as if, as if, you know, he still wants to maintain some semblance of uh, authority in this moment. So I'm going to call a servant, one of the lower servants, to come tell me what's going on. And when, when he finds out what, what's happening, of course, it's unjust to him. It's, and that's relatable. And he disagrees with this father throwing this party when, when he has done everything right. He's followed all the rules all this time, and he's never even gotten a goat. Like he starts complaining um, to his father later. But that the son stays outside after he finds out what's going on is also offensive. Because where should he be? Where should that older son be? He should be in the house. He should walk into the father's presence. And mind you, if it's a shared communal society and, and community, it's offensive to be outside because all this is his as well, and he's a, the next best representative of his father. He should be in the house making sure everybody's glasses are full, making sure you know, they've got their cookies, making sure everybody's taken care of, mingling, working the room. He's the best representative of his father, and yet he's outside. That's offensive. He's, he's rebelling there as well, saying, I should be out here. I've never disobeyed your commands. I don't belong in there. And he's speaking poorly about his younger son, throwing him under the bus and all that. So here we also see the posture of the father. Where does the father go? He goes outside. So he went outside to both. He goes outside to this older son. And again, the second picture of God's radical love. So I first said is there's the celebration over the loss, the rejoicing over the loss. But God's radical love also encourages the self righteous. God's love encourages the self-righteous brat with the gospel of grace, with God's, with his own grace. So the Pharisees were the brat in the story. Uh, They were like the brat's son in the story. And as I think about this, this parable, it's traditionally called the parable of the prodigal son, which as it's titled in your Bibles, maybe, um, that causes us to focus on the younger son. And we just really think about the gospel being about the lost, being found, and that's what it is. But we think about it in terms of somebody who goes and lives this crazy off-the-wall life and then comes back home and returns and we all celebrate. But when I think about all these elements of where both sons were and how they both react to the father, the question that I'm left with is, which one is actually lost? which one is actually lost. And they both had some elements of being lost in their life. You know, this son should be inside. He, he's, he's choosing to be outside. He's like the Pharisees. You know, they, they are, are, are critical of Jesus. They're on the outside. And if you notice, at the very end of the parable, did you notice it, it ends openly? It doesn't ever have a resolution so we don't ever find out, did that older son enter? Did he walk inside? Did he join the party? We don't know. It remains to be seen. You know, that's the other element of this is it's hard to know, like, will the pharisaical approach to life, will that, will that ever um, bring us into God's house? So which character do you relate with, the younger son or the older one in the story? When I became a Christian at 18, I definitely related, when I read this parable, I related to the younger son. It's like, I'm coming to, to the Lord. I'm coming to the house of God. I'm, 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 you know, learning all these things about Jesus. And I'm celebratory. Like, you know, every weekend was like a party. When you come to church with God's people, I'm like, this is amazing. I, uh, I have so much to catch up on. Like, I really enjoyed church and I enjoyed all the elements of my faith and learning and growing. It was a celebration all the time. It was like because I didn't know this stuff because I was out there living in the world and I didn't know any different. But after, you know, 20 years now of following Jesus, there have been more times that I've found myself relating to the story of the older son. After now that I've been in the house for a while, doing the work, especially as a pastor, sometimes you you get into these ruts of thinking just moralistically, like it's about right and wrong you know and making sure we follow those straight and narrow and and you know and and there obviously is a behavioral and lifestyle pattern that we we do live for out of faithfulness to God and obedience but sometimes we also fall short maybe more times we fall short and so i too find myself relating with this older son you know when when justice isn't the way i think it should be and and so As I consider both of these, there's three characters to the story. It's not just about the two sons. There's a third character. It's the father. And when we were praying this morning, when Pastor Paul was praying with us this morning, you know, he reminded me of this. This is exactly, I think, what should be talked about is that uh, the father is reckless here. Yeah, he's being the reckless one in how he loves, the way that he loves. His love is radical. I think that this is a story about a reckless father's love. It's about a radical love that's a gift that you don't deserve. That's what this story is about. So I think the story should be renamed something like that, the parable of the radically loving father or the parable of the recklessly loving father, something like that, because that's what this parable is about. Um, you know, when the younger son has his conversion moment and he makes his plan to reenter the house as a lowly servant, just notice what the father does this whole time. He ran outside the house. He didn't stay in the house. He ran out to him. By the way, if you you know, I'm thinking like an older gentleman, like in the story. I'm imagine like an older man, and you know that that's kind of dishonorable. If you, it's like kind of a funny sight to see an old man running. Older man running. I mean, there's a not. To, it's fine if you're doing it recreationally, but if you're just living life and you're like running around because you're urgent about something, it, it doesn't carry the same. There's there's a certain. Some people would say that, uh, commentators have said that this is almost like a dishonorable type of appearance. That he's running out to him. It's like what you don't expect. Why are they running? <laughs> when he runs out to him, and when the son starts to talk to him to tell him his plan that he devised to earn his way back into the house, did you notice that the father cut him off? He didn't even get to utter the words. I'm going to do A, B, C, and D to try to w- work my way back into your house. The father stopped him. You know, all he got out of his mouth was, "I've sinned against, I've sinned against you," basically. And then he stopped and he was like, "Put the, get the robe, get the ring, put the shoes on him, get the fattened calf. He's home. He's alive. He's resurrected again." That language of resurrection. You know, this is this is how it is with us. This is how God treats us. We might come up with these plans of how we got to make it right before God, but God is the one who runs out to us. You know, salvation is something that you didn't earn. It was given to you, and you don't sustain it. Um, it It's God who works it out in you. It is God's work, and he's constantly working on us, and he's constantly re-robing us (laughs) and giving us sandals for our feet and and reminding us, you belong to me. You're mine. Let's celebrate. When the older son comes up, again, the father goes out to him, that's a, that's a gospel practice, by the way. Going out to them, and he encourages him to come inside and join the party. It remains to be seen if the older son would do it because of his Phariseeism, but the the invitation is there. This reminds me that Jesus gave those Pharisees opportunities to be part of what God was doing. This is a reminder: the door was open, but would they walk? Would they would they join? Would they come into the party? So back to which character is you? The three characters in the story or which ones you relate to. While we might relate with one of the two sons, I, th- I hope and my prayer is for us as believers in time as we mature in our faith that we become more like the father. God is the father in the story and we are to be like him. We, we have been the recipients of his love and that love makes us like him. We can't love like this without God's love in our own lives. We need to be like people who run out to those who are lost, invite them to the meal, we need to, to, to walk out to the ones who are difficult to love, not, not easy. Um, and, and we have both kinds of people in our lives, people like both the younger and the older son. We need to love them both. We need to go out to them. You know, as I think about this, I'm convicted in that I love to stay inside the house. It's hard for me to run out the doors, especially I'm a little bit introverted, truth be told. You know, it's a little bit safer inside. But God loves those people just like he loves me. And I am just like them. So there are ways that we can do this. And my, my encouragement for us today is we just consider God's radical love is just to be renewed in the fact that he's run out to you. and He's come out to include you, to be part of his family. And that, that God celebrates us. God rejoices over us. And I don't want to forget that, you know. When I come to church, like it's been fun to come just these few times to be with you. It's 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 supposed to be celebratory in, in, in nature. It, it, it encourages us, um, you know. Maybe if we celebrated more, I know the world is a, is a troublesome place, and we can be hypercritical of it, and we can we can talk about what's wrong with it, and we should talk about how to help it. But let's not lose the celebratory part of our faith. You know, when I go to celebrations with people who have something to celebrate, they seem to be happier people. (laughs) You know, they seem to be people of rejoicing and just joyous, like fun to be around. That's what a Christian is. We we are people who have been celebrating at the table together with our Lord, who saved us, who prepared a wonderful meal in place for us. And so our faith is not uh, supposed to be laborious in that sense. I don't feel like, uh, down after going to a party, I feel amazing. So as you just consider this parable and this story that is, be renewed in the gospel of God's radical love for you and celebrate it. Don't forget, you've been redeemed. And, um, you know, God, God, he clothes us, and he, he's a, he is a, just an incredible father to us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for teaching it to us in ways like this, the vehicle of a parable, a story we relate, God, to the characters at different times in our lives. Sometimes we make mistakes, bad decisions, certain things that come back to our failure. But there you are, God, running out to us. And sometimes, God, we, we act in critical ways of others. God, is a pastor, it's sometimes hard not to look at other ministries and other, other expressions of Christ in the world and think, Ah, is that right? Do they belong to you? Lord, instead, replace in our hearts today just uh, uh, the gospel truth of this, this incredible love. It's expressed in Christ who died for us, just like we confessed, who rose again and is seated at your right hand. He did this out of love. God, help us to be people who are celebrating that love this weekend and, and, and each day. And help us to encourage one another to be kind of a, a refreshing presence in one another's life. I thank you for so much, church, and I just pray that this day they would be blessed, God, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us to run out to all those who also need to experience the same love that we have. Thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for your people. Uh, We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.